0: Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? it for crimes that I had done he died upon the tree amazing pity grace unknown and love beyond degree but Drops of grief can never repay the debt.
1: Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, one aspect about the Beatitudes is that in many ways they are truth that's standing on its head. It's truth that's meant to grab your attention. And this Beatitude, probably more than any other, is the most counterintuitive. It says, Happy are the unhappy. Happy are those who are mourning, who sorrow. And so the question is, what kind of sorrow can it be that actually brings the blessings of Christ with it? And again, for us, this is probably the most counterintuitive one. I mean, we are Americans, and it is written into our constitution. Our divine right is life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that pursuit has become the central aim of how people choose jobs, marriages, where to live. Will this make me happy? One of the largest industries in our economy is the entertainment industry, where the one great pursuit is to never mourn. So what in the world does this mean? One helpful way to think about this is this is the emotional component to the intellectual reality of the first beatitude. The poor in spirit teaches you to be humble and dependent. And then this is the emotional energy that that should create. So with all these beatitudes, the most important thing is to get clear on the terms. So when he's talking about blessed are those that are mourn, this isn't a spiritual context. It's poor in spirit. It's not just those who are poor. It's those who hunger and thirst, not just for bread or water. It's hunger and thirst for righteousness. So it's not just the same as mourning, the same type of mourning you would do at a a funeral. So that's not what this is only. And this isn't just a pessimistic personality. I mean, some people are just more pessimistic. Some cultures are more pessimistic. I have a British friend who jokes that soccer is the ultimate game for pessimists, and the reason why Americans never will truly love it is because you can spend 90 minutes exerting all of your energy and effort, and the game most often will just end in a tie. So This is a game for pessimists. So what is this morning? And I think the passage I want to turn your attention to this morning is Psalm 51, and This psalm illustrates what good morning is. Because there's a type of morning that is good, that leads you to repentance, that leads you to the cross, that leads you to humbleness, that leads you to strength. And Psalm 51 is a classic place to teach us what good morning is. So this is a long, powerful passage, and the best we can do is just fly over the surface today. So I just want to point out a few things as we go through it. So open up to Psalm 51 if you're able, and read through it. And verses 1 through 4 set the stage. This is the appeal to God's mercy, and then the confession. So this psalm, the historical setting, is, is after David's confronted by the prophet Nathan, and he's repenting of his Sin against Uriah and against Bathsheba and against the Lord and against the nation. And so this is the famous repentance psalm. So one through four, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Now listen to all the personal language. Listen to how he owns it, how specific he is. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge to hear all the I, the me, the my, and all the language he used. My transgression, my iniquity, my sin, my transgression, my sin, my evil. He's specific. This is not vague. This is not general. And then notice the need. Blot out my transgression. Clear my record. I'm guilty. So clear my record. But then wash me. Clean me. I'm dirty. I'm polluted. So not only am I guilty, I'm dirty. And then the appeal to God's justice. It is against you, and you only have I sinned. You recognize that ultimately God is the offended party, and this is what makes sin so bad. It's not the devastating social consequences. It's not the, the disastrous spiritual consequences. So one through four set the stage. This is good mourning. And then notice there's a three-step process for restoration. Verse 5 through 9, he asked to restore the relationship. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's his situation. That's how deep sin runs. This is sin with a capital S, not a small s. This is sin as a condition, not just an action. He recognizes that. And then God's standard in verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. God's standard, and then what God reveals, the wisdom, and that's to know our true condition, who we really are. So it's what generates and causes the mourning. But then 7 through 9, restore the relationship. Return me to your smile. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow, whiter than snow, better than nature can do. I'll be renewed Make me to hear joy and gladness. There's so much sound. There's so much noise. I need you to make me hear these things. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Then here it is. Hide not or hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Don't see them. Restore and renew our relationship first. And then verse 10, it starts the inward renewal. That's the second step, and hear all the verbs. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Verse twelve. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sustain me with a willing spirit. See all of these things. The Creator is being called in. Just as you created in the beginning, you have to create again. Recreate me. Renew me. Re. Store me, sustain me. And it has to be at the innermost part of my being, the heart, the steering wheel of our life. This is what has to be changed. And then, of course, verse 11 is the ultimate plea. Whatever brings you to the place of verse 11 is good. And if it's mourning, then it's good. Do not cast me away from your presence. and Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. That's ultimate the ultimate sting of sin is separation from the presence. And whenever that happens, it's a cause for mourning. Notice what David doesn't say: don't take away my kingdom, don't take away the girl, don't take away the child, don't take away the army, don't take away the riches. No. It's don't take away your presence. And then what does he need restored? It's the joy of your salvation. That's what sin steals. That's the great satanic lie is that sin is the pathway to joy. It's not. It's the thief of joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And then starting verse 14 through 17 is the third step, which is outward, outward renewal. He then, see, if the Lord renews him, restores him, fixes the relationship, restores him, then he will become a bold herald, a champion. He will... Declare in the congregation. He will open his lips and his mouth will declare his praise in verse 15. Then notice what's ultimate. Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That is what's ultimate. That's what God desires. That's what makes mourning good. Because it leads you to a place of humility. It leads you to a place of confession. It leads you to a place of repentance. And the reason why mourning is good is because we have a good God who loves to renew and restore what's broken. In the beginning, he created. And in redemption, he recreates. This is how you can experience good
0: Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.